because every single person that disappears is obviously the phantom obviously scary so therefore batman is the phantom batman and plus the phantom creates layers uh so therefore batman is the phantom because he is a villain therefore by creating layers and he's also disappearing (laughs) he also has a face he hides from the world So he's like, I'm the Phantom. I'm gonna go beat up the Joker. I'm Vengeance. (laughs) Cinematic Fantastic. Atu, Barada, Nikto. I'll show you who I am and what I am. By a werewolf and lives, becomes a werewolf himself. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello and welcome to the Cinematic Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Weatherford. And your other host, William Weatherford. Get ready for opinions, dad jokes, and bad jokes. As we watch and review sci-fi and fantasy films from the classics of yesteryear to the new favorites of today. Hello and welcome to uh, the sixth episode of our podcast where we talk about the Phantom of the Opera. Uh, the first, well, not the first, but the the first Universal monster movie. As we're transitioning away from the silent era, this is our last silent era film, and we're going into the Universal monster f- uh film era, which is, uh, those are all really great movies and uh our first talkies, but uh this one isn't unfortunately. Yes, uh, one thing to to note, William, is that they didn't really have a Universal monster movie you know universe as they thought of it but that did come later as they started kind of you know going oh we do have a thing here and they kind of adopted the phantom in to to being part of that because it was they didn't know what they were creating at the time they were creating it yeah so uh for this episode we have decided that we're going to have a guest for today yay uh leia weatherford uh, my older sister, introduce yourself. Hello. Uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? That's a hard question to answer. But <laughs> I guess the most relevant things are probably the fact that I, um, while not published, I am a writer and mm. working on several novels and uh, lots of poetry. She's a very literary person. Though hopefully not a figurative person. No, she's she's the realest person you're ever going to meet. She's like the female version of Nick Fury. <laughs> ah, whatever. <laughs> I don't know about being very real. I may just be a figment of all your imagination. Who knows? This could be an audio hallucination right now. I am the phantom of the podcast. Nice. Indeed. Nice. So this movie, this movie is about... A woman who's named Christine and the Phantom who haunts a the French opera house and who uh, murders all the people, uh, basically. <laughs> he doesn't murder everyone. He mur- and so then meets and falls in love with Christine. He then meets and falls in love with Christine. Right, tr- try again. <laughs> that was good, that was good. Well, I think he... He loves her before he meets her, but does he really know what love is? And that's that's a deep conversation. And so, therefore, she gets into the opera house and she sings uh, in the opera house. 
as their new prima donna. But then he gets shunned as a romantic partner, and so then plans to kill all of her boyfriends before getting thrown in a moat. That is the basic plot synopsis. Wow. Well, this is based off of Gaston Leroux's 1910 Le Fantôme de l'Opera. Uh, I'm not, I'm just flubbing it. That's okay. I will. I will help. But with this it is again. a yeah. So this is a romance novel, which has a lot of romance tropes. However, this is a Universal monster movie. So uh, what's interesting is that instead of a romance, they portray this more as a monster movie, and the Phantom more as a uh, instead of someone to be pitied is more as a monster, is more as a villain, and uh, that's very interesting. And one of the only and like the only reason we're covering it is because it's a monster movie and a Universal monster movie at that. Okay, so, hey, William, uh, one thing that I would like to say is that most of the reason why we see uh, the Phantom as as to be more pitied and as a tragic romantic character is probably because of the the later portrayals. The musical. That, yeah, thank you. The ni- 1943, there's a 1961, and then, of course, most infamously, there's a musical created by Andrew Lloyd Webber that came out, I believe, in the 80s. And that one's it's just full-on romance. They absolutely love each other all the way, and, you know, enough to sing a really high note. Leia could probably sing it because she's the first soprano, but it would burst all our eardrums. It and, would. Uh, it, blow, it would blow the podcast recording software into oblivion, and we kind of have to have those for the rest of these episodes. Yeah. Basically, just imagine a mouse. That's a ma- yeah, mouse. Oh, the meme. Okay, oh, the I can't meme. sing it that well. You're just gonna hear squeaking. I thought those were shrews. Weren't they shrews in the meme? Where they're or maybe your sh- guinea pigs, right? Uh, speaking of which, our personal mascots for this episode is uh, the guinea pigs that are in Leia's room. So if you hear any of those scuttling about and going about their business, squeaking, maybe if they expect food, our apologies for that. But that is uncontrollable. Because uh, we can't just control every little beast that we see. We can't just, like, extend our brain over a whole population. So, uh, this movie was created by Universal Studios, who has grown into, like, this huge thing. Owns a, a bunch of things, you know, has a park. Owns a quite a bit of properties and is pretty cool. But for now, was very small. It was founded in uh, 1919 by uh, Carl Lamel. It, uh, actually, I'm going to help you pronounce it. It's Limley. Lemley. 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 So, so just, Carl Lemley. Yes. Now, uh, one thing one thing I could say about Carl Lemley is he was infamous for hiring a lot of family friends and family members. There used to be a joke that said that you know, if if you worked with him, you were probably a family friend or a family member. It was very it was what's that called nepotism? I think is where you hi- just hire your your family or something like that. So so basically. Oh us. wait a minute! Oh oh, I feel so called out. Okay, so but I have I didn't hire you. I asked you to do this, and you said yes. That's different. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, you could pay me if you want. If we made money, we could. <laughs> So let me uh, let me sum up uh, a little bit about Universal first off. Okay, so the m- most important thing that we can learn about Universal is at this time they had different what are called tiers or levels of movies. They you know kind of like you want to think about gold, bronze, and you know gold, silver, and bronze. You know what level 
of things. They had something, I think it was called the Jewel Level, which was like their big pictures, the ones that where they put lots of money into it. They had lavish... And like stars and stuff. Lavish sets, right? Lavish... And Demi Lovato and all no, sorts of stuff. She's not a big star and Okay, not in this case. All right. Well, not that level. What we're talking about is... So if you're trying to get... You know, you know the big stars. You know, and, the, and spend the big money. You, you do the jewel level. That's that's kind of they have something similar now because they'll do like they'll do some movies that they'll do direct. They did you know direct to video or, or or you know direct to streaming, and then they'll do you know that's fine. Universal can do that, but they'll also do do big blockbuster stuff. So they do some. They just don't call it. You know, they don't call it jewel and and whatever the other names were. Um, they were doing that to basically have uh you know b pictures and c pictures you know kind of as we discussed earlier yes uh, in our last podcast about lost world it was very interesting right so before um before the night by the 1920s they were pretty established and prominent but they weren't considered that earlier uh they were mostly doing cheap uh, you know and most time they do cheap westerns and serials and stuff like that so i think what really turned it around for them was those kind of universal monster movies, but they didn't really think of the Phantom as, as a monster, maybe monstrous in action um, in the things that he did, but um, not by his appearance. Um, and we'll talk about, when we get to talk about Lon Chaney and his theory about his characters that he played, there's a certain thing that he, um, he didn't see characters as monstrous. He looked at them as that there was something deeper within them and, and that that maybe the, Sometimes society is the monster. True. Yeah. We, we are the monster. Well, in this case, uh, and I have to find the quote that uh, that talks about that. So, so Carl Limley was uh, he he self funded a lot of the movies, which is why they weren't as impressive in in many things. But the the one main guy that really got it going was a young studio chief named Irving Thalberg, and he um, he was able to get Lon Chaney pulled in for. Uh, Victor Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And that one was very popular. And you get to see Lon Chaney really, you know, stretch his, his makeup chops and his acting chops. Well, influential, uh, we're unfortunately not covering it today because we missed the boat by two years, unfortunately. Right. And if not, we ever were. And we're not, we're not covering it mainly because it's not related to the Universal Monster movie thing. But it is considered part of those, you know, kind of adjacent to that. But the thing about it is while Hunchback was in production... Limley traveled to Paris and he met Gaston LaRue. And Gaston LaRue uh, was a one time law student and journalist. And then, so then, Lamo was like, hey, uh, he was like by this, uh, the opera house in France and he was like, this thing's pretty cool. And then Gaston LaRue was like, uh, well, I made a book about it. It's called yes. uh, The Phantom of the Opera. And he gave him his uh, personal copy and they read it and then he uh, went over and he's like, hey, can I make a movie out of this? Sure. And then. It started into production. That's honestly the highest honor as a writer, to have your friend make art or memes or even a movie, if they're skilled enough. And and I'll tell you two things about how he honored that. Well, first off, the book did not start out as an actual novel. It was serialized. So what you would have to do, what, what do we watch today that's serialized? It's like a, you know, a season of a Disney Plus show it's or something. It's a breakfast. No, boo. I'm, I'm at like a, you know, like, okay, so we come back every week to watch another episode of a show that's that's being shown. It's a long form uh, entertainment. In this case, he would write 
a chapter and he would put it in like the the, the local newspaper. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle did the same thing um, with it with uh, Sherlock Holmes. What they did is they put it out there and people were like, oh, I, I can't get enough. And they'd buy the next newspaper. It was a real seller. And then what he did is then compiled them all together and made the book. Kind of like Garfield or uh, what was the one with uh, Cal- Calvin and Hobbes? Calvin and Hobbes. Well, the, yeah, the, that's serialized uh, comic strip. So in this case, it was it was more of a story. It was actually uh, you know prose that you would read in the newspaper. So uh, the filmmakers, since they were unfamiliar with the Paris Opera House, so they consulted an art director who had worked at the opera, and he made charcoal sketches. Like he literally went with a piece of charcoal and he drew on some paper. Yeah. And he made sketches of all the rooms and stuff, which they like tried to replicate. Although it was more based on imagination than reality, his pictures. The sets were honestly gorgeous. Yes, they were. And the fan of the opera, therefore, is based off of imagination, the Paris Opera House. Also, one thing about the sets that I will say is that they were some of the most extensive and expensive to do, but it paid off because they're the, the only bad, bad thing about the sets is I think it took until about, they didn't use them for a good while. Many of the other sets they built like on top of them, so they're, uh, they were still there, although they did get removed and somewhat demolished to, and I feel sad saying this, there was a Universal Studios uh, Transformers ride, and they put that all in there instead of that. Oh, no. That's the rumor, but I think that there is still some elements of that that they moved out of there. I think the only part that really survives is the Paris Opera House part. And what exists in our hearts, of course. Oh, thank you. That Thank, thank you for bringing it to an emotional crescendo. So, But I mean, there are seven levels of sets in there, so it was very extensive. Absolutely. Uh, is uh, the Phantom's layer. Which, because he's a monster, a villain, he has his own lair and stuff with his own traps and stuff and alarms, as we'll see. I guess that I guess that would make Batman a villain and also Superman because they both have their own lair. So a a, <laughs> la, a lair does not a villain make though, William. So you know because ogres have layers after all. Oh, like onions. Yeah. Get out of my swamp. We're coming back to the Shrek thing again. He 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 put he pulled a, a Shrek quote. When we were talking about Max Shrek in Nosferatu, and then now it comes back full circle. Thank you, William. It's the nature of Shrek. He has to haunt everything. Yes. Oh, too. Yeah, he will never escape our minds. He won't stop coming, and he keeps on coming. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, so so back to, back to this. Okay, so when Limley was choosing a director, he chose a guy named Rupert Julian. And Rupert Julian had done big, you know, real... Uh, high-minded pictures that, you know, like uh, there was a guy named Eric Stroheim. He did uh, a movie for him called Merry-Go-Round, and that's actually where uh, Mary Philbin, who plays Christine, was was in that. So, you know, and, and so they knew... That's how I knew her, probably. Well, she also was a family friend. Again, Limley with the family friend thing. So what what had happened was he J- Rupert Julian was not the easiest guy to work for. Uh, Lon Chaney... When we get to talking about him more, but Lon Chaney actually self-directed some of his scenes. He could not, he could not talk to Rupert Julian, the director, and that's a very important thing for an actor to do is have good communication with the director. They could not talk at all. They were like, um, they were not on speaking terms. So they had a cameraman, which we would call today a cinematographer. His name was uh, Van Inger, Charles Van Inger, yeah, 
and he was the go-between in between them. And he's like, uh, do I have to really be doing this, guys? You know, that's what he's going. So he talks to Lon, and Lon goes, I'm doing the scene how I want to do it. You can just, you know, it's almost like when you have somebody in the middle of a two-divorced couple. And he goes, well, you tell your father that I'm not talking to him anymore. Well, you tell your mother that she's being a real jerk. It's that kind of thing. I'm, ser- I'm not an owl. I'm serious. That exact, Leia, that's exactly what was happening. And, the, well, that the, he was not the only one that got mad at Rupert Julian. The actor Norman... Norman Carey, who played Raul, uh, the, you know, the, quote, love interest guy, and whatever he is, he actually ran the director down with a horse. I guess he was like, I'm going, coming through here, and he, like, about ran him over on purpose. So while they're making the movie, uh, inspired by the novel, uh, they're going to add, like, a big flashback to uh, Persia, where Eric, he served as a conjurer and uh, an executioner in uh, the court of the Sultana, uh, Sultana using his famous lasso to strangle all the prisoners. But then when he fell out of her favor, uh, he was condemned to a pit of carnivorous ants and was rescued by Lado, who is now the detective in this film, in the final version. But the ants consumed his face, and that's how he had his backstory for doing that. However, of course, the part of the face thing while it isn't, uh, like, the musical and stuff. Where that is a born deformity. Yeah. And then it eventually got toned down to just he studied in Persia with Lido, and then eventually entirely got cut out in favor of he was on an island and he was doing the demonic black arts and stuff. Which apparently is not book Devil accurate. Island or something. Right. Leia, Leia's right. Lots of changes. Mostly the movie is... You know, it is on par with the faithful. book. It's pretty faithful. And uh, what had happened was they had a version, first off, that they previewed for audiences. And it had more of a romantic comedy thing. And audiences hated that. Then, well, well that's good because that wasn't what the book was. But hang on. here, it, it, Hang on. There's more. So they had an ending, which was, which was very much pretty close to the book, where uh, Eric, the Phantom of the Opera, is... In his, he's playing music on his organ, and he dies. It just dies of it. No, of a broken heart. It's very romantic, right? But the audience hated that because he was. It was just so sudden, and it did feel great. It's not completely the suddenness. It didn't have the action and excitement that. Well, they they, they saw him as as having some qualities which were kind of uh, villainous. They did see some of those, like him, him murdering people, and they were like, "He's got to get his." And so what they did is. They wanted more of an action-packed horror kind of thing. And, and there's a lot of people that, that really go into detail and in reviewing this movie and say that's the part that that they feel doesn't fit the movie completely. I felt the same thing. I was kind of bored and I wasn't paying attention at the end. <laughs> so I was like, explosions, explosions, horse carriages. Ah, uh, yes. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, there are also other endings as well. One of them was that you know he was lassoing to the top of the bridge. Then it was cut by Simon, uh, and then he f- falls. And then he's like, his last words are, "All I wanted was to have a wife like anyone else and to take her out on Sundays." And then they're like, "No, that doesn't." That work. one was terrible either. And then instead, uh, they have instead that he says that he's dying and that he's ill. And then, like, he slumps it on the floor and the wedding, ro- the wedding rig rolls across the carpet. And then 
Rel Cubs and Consulter. But eventually, it's just that they just throw, uh, the throw the Phantom into the same sign. Yes, I think it very much tells how each person viewed the story when adapting it mm-hmm. or coming up with an in- with an ending. That's um, true. Some view it as a monster movie, others a romance, and some view it a tragedy. Mm. And then we also have the actors, of course, Long Cheney, who was, uh, he's the man of a thousand faces. He uh, did his own makeup in Hunchback of Notre Dame, and then they allowed him to do it again for The Phantom, of which he did whatever he could. Because of the book, he had no nose, apparently, but in this, his nose is just lifted up with wires and stuff, and there's, like, putty and stuff that he does to make his face incredibly hideous. It's terribly effective, even to today. But, uh, it also was very torturous, and he bled a lot, and it was very uncomfortable, to put it lightly. <laughs> Immense pain and torture, and the suffering and the anguish and the blood tears and sweat. Just your everyday. <laughs> Just your everyday. movie. Everything that you're talking about that we see in that was kept a supreme secret, even from some people on the set. They also kept it a secret in a lot of the publicity poster pictures. They would put a piece of black tape over where the face would be. They kept it very mysterious. In fact, when he would come to the set within the makeup, they'd put a hood over his face so no one could see. In fact, one there was one time where the... There's a story, I don't know if this is absolutely true, but there's a story where, you know, Lon Chaney had a good relationship, I guess, with the cameraman, uh, Charles Van Inger, and he calls him into his trailer, and he scares him, he scares him, and Charles says, oh, I, he say, basically says, I about used the bathroom on myself, I went to the bathroom on myself, and he, go, and he goes, why did you do that? And he goes, you told me everything I need to know with that reaction. So basically he's saying, you know, I got the reaction that I was looking for, that'll be perfect, and... When Lon Chaney is doing the infamous unmasking scene that he does in the movie, and if you see the movie, fellow listeners, very famous, very famous, very famous. And when he does, he does it. The reaction from the actress Mary Philbin, uh, who plays Christine, was actually that was real. She really did get freaked out by that, and that's honestly the most memorable thing about this entire movie to me and to a lot of other people is the genius of Lon Chaney. One thing to mention, though, William, and I, I, I have seen the 1957 biopic about Lon Chaney called The Man of a Thousand Faces, uh, starring James Cagney. I've seen it like three times. When I used to, I used to, we used to have cable back at my mom's house, and she had an old movie channel. You guys would love it. History Channel. Well, sort of. It's, it's an old movie channel. So let me sum it up real quick. A lot of it of the story is fictionalized, but one main thing that we do know is, and he had some other issues with uh, thing with his wife uh, that he had divorced and they left him a son of course um, who later changed his name to be Lon Chaney Jr. which we will we will see him quite a few times in in our movies Uh, Lon Chaney Sr. was actually his parents were deaf and mute so they lived in a world of silence and so all his expressions and everything that you see when you see him in movies that are silent it's going to give you a whole new appreciation for him and his work because when you see it all the expressions and things he's doing, these are things that how he would express himself to, to people that were in the deaf community and were absolutely silent. And the, the shame of it is when they when they went to, quote, talkies or voice pictures with voice in them. Like his voice had a trouble and he couldn't survive it. Well, he couldn't do it. Well, he couldn't. The reason his voice had a trouble is because uh, he had throat cancer. 
it's it's kind of sad. It's like his uh, his first and one in one of his last pictures that was a talkie was called the Unholy Three, and the reason why that was his first talkie and not the Phantom. The, okay, backstory real quick. The Phantom they did a reissue of it in 1929 where they filmed some scenes anew, and they had actual singing in it. Uh, Mary Philbin was actually a she could actually sing opera opera, so they had her do it and. When they did, they they film refilmed some scenes, but they couldn't get Lon Chaney to do it because he was already contracted with MGM and was doing the Unholy Three as his first uh, speaking sound role. And so you can't say, oh, this is Lon Chaney's first speaking role, and yet do it in you know the reissue of Phantom. It just wouldn't work. Plus, when you're contracted to a studio, sometimes you sign a signature saying, I'll just do MGM stuff from now on or for this period of my life. You remember we talked about that before. People were contracted to certain movie movie production groups, and they would only do Universal Pictures, or they would only do whatever. And I think that that has gone away in the modern era, pretty much, unless you've contracted with you know, like like let's say Chris Evans, who plays Captain America. He's he's contracted for a certain number of pictures with, a, but that's different. That's different than than being a Universal person or or a MGM person. You would you could do a, a variety of different pictures. You're not them. signed up to one specific person, or you're, you're not you're not signed up to one specific genre or whatever. But some people just had a lot more success in the genres that they did. A lot of Lon Chaney stuff that he was really good at was was the silent stuff. It's a shame that when they went over to talkies that it didn't work out so well for him. But we still have these pictures and these movies, these films that we can look at and enjoy. And to me. Phantom, although it's an interesting story, it's rather straightforward. It's rather, it's a simple story. That's okay. It's not very deep, but that's okay. Saleya, what's your thoughts? Well, I personally think it, at least the concept, is very deep, depending on how you look at it. Mm. Although the musical is kind of responsible for showing the the character of Christine being more pitying towards mm-hmm. the Phantom. I agree. And that was not a detail that was in uh, this movie. I think it still really shows society, even if it was a monster movie. We There are a lot of people who are belittled and pushed down and made to feel weird or even like a monster. Yeah. And... You have the phrase, the people who hurt, hurt other people. And while that isn't an excuse to hurt people, Mm. it does explain why a lot of people who have been abused or bullied or hurt go on to do the same. And with the Phantom, he has experienced maybe all his life, I don't know, depending on what you view his backstory as. He has experienced people looking at him in horror and always viewing him as a monster. And while he did become a horrible person and a monster, that was hugely due to um, society's treatment of him. Yes. And so if you really think about it, there is a lot of things we can do as a society to improve even still. We aren't quite as terrible to people who have differences or disabilities or Indeed. deformities, but there are still horrible people, especially online. 
Yes. And I think it is very important that we truly look at the villains in the story, not excusing them, but with a pitying look and try and understand what has pushed them to do so, so that we don't push others to do the same. One thing to answer that is that goes perfectly with a quote that Lon Chaney once said. He said, I wanted to remind people that the lowest types of humanity may have within them the capacity for supreme self-sacrifice. The dwarven or the misshapen beggar of the streets may have the noblest ideals. So he wanted people to even look past the makeup that was horrifying sometimes and maybe look past it and go, well, there's there's a depth there. There's someone there and there's something going on. Uh, especially he it's especially true of the hunchback of Notre Dame and that's especially true yes. of of Eric the Phantom. Now, uh as we're kind of summing up here, uh William is there anything more that you want to say before we uh go on to the uh the plot of this picture? Uh we have time for three other people who are very important. So we have Mary Philbin of course who played Christian Day and also who was another character who was also named Day. She really liked playing people named Day, I guess. In The Man Who Laughs, who is uh the predecessor movie for oh, Joker. Oh, it was uh Dia. Her so anything with a D and A in it, I guess she loves it. But yeah, she played a she played a character named Dia and Dia was blind and The Man Who Laughs uh, was named Gwynplaine, and she loved... He was played by Conrad Veidt, who, as we know, is Césaire. Oh, one thing about Mary Philbin is I did th- I did think about that her acting in this was a little over the top, but... Th- very memeable, though. Yeah, very memeable. But here's the, th- here's the thing, though, about Mary Philbin is, unfortunately, I hate to kind of say this, but she didn't have the easiest time working with uh, Norman Carey, who played Raoul, uh, Nor- uh, Norman Carey had was famously a little handsy. So if you think about it, it you know that she kind of had to deal with. He was a little bit inappropriate, and uh, and he was also a swashbuckler kind of character who we also played in uh, the things that he played. He was uh, also formerly Norman Kaiser before World War One. Of course, you wouldn't ever be named German during a German war because you'll be wow. because otherwise you'd be targeted. So it's like, hey, what's your name, Kaiser? That's obviously German. You'd uh, say, it's, it's, it's "My name's James Hitler." Uh, how you doing? <laughs> uh, no, I think we need. I think we need to change your name, sir, to Hiller, uh, to make your acting work. Yeah, uh, Norman Norman Carey. Um, he play. He was very kind of a leading man character. Raoul wasn't the most leading man kind of character, but Norman Carey Norman Carey played uh, leading men characters a lot. With you have a leading man, they're going to be put together with a, with a romantic uh, lead as well, and so it's a shame that he had that habit of being. And again, I'm, we're just going off of some things Mary Philbin said. If she says that he was that way, and then we'll have to go. We'll, let's go with that because maybe there's some other ladies that were in not so famous pictures with him that had similar things to say, but didn't have the guts to say it. Indeed, and the last person is uh, Arthur Edmund Corot. Or as he uses in movies, just Arthur Corot without Edmund. Was he Ledoux, the, the Persian guy? Yeah, he 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 was Ledoux. An uh, interesting fact about him: he was in a you know fan of the opera. He was also in Uncle Tom's Cabin in uh, nineteen twenty-seven. But he was considered for which is going to be our next episode 
is uh, 1931's Dracula. He was considered for the role of Dracula before being... What? Before Bella Lugosi was chosen to be Dracula. Honestly, from his performance in the, this movie, I would have really liked him to be Dracula because he would be so perfect for... Once you see Bella Lugosi as Dracula, you're probably never going to see anyone else as Dracula again. I think he's that iconic. Final thoughts is that this was the beginning of Universal Studios as a whole with their first couple of movies. And uh, Leia, your final thoughts? I don't think I have any. I think what we should do is let the giant chandelier of the break crash into us and uh, put us... Uh, let, let us get smashed beneath the 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 heavy weight no. of the of the wonderful break, and then when we come back from the break, we're gonna talk about the plot. Um, and oh boy, is there a plot? There definitely is, and um, it's fascinating. So, uh, shall we bid adieu? Oh, adieu! Oh, that uh, we're using French now. Adieu, adieu, good sir. Boy, boy, goodbye. back we're glad that you're still with us as we are going through uh 1925's 1925's phantom of the opera uh the fan the the phantom of the opera so we went to go watch this movie in the opera and then we came back and now we have stuff to say about it oh after after intermission we just had intermission where everybody goes to the goes out to the lobby and gets themselves a snack just like the old cartoon says so Leia's gonna handle the plot today which is very we are gonna go over the plot and our guest uh leia my daughter leia weatherford uh is gonna go over the plot and we'll kind of discuss kind of as she's going what what's going on if we need to interrupt for any reason that's fine go ahead but don't uh don't stop or flow too much i'm sure it'll work just fine i think it'll be fine okay Here's the plot as told by me, a writer. So you are sure to have lots of long vocabulary. Very smart. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So basically, (laughs) we start off with this guy with a lantern. He comes in. So he's looking around, kind of going, what? What's going on here? And yeah, the lantern guy is pretty awesome. He's just, like, there, and he's mysterious. No one knows his purpose until he just comes rumbling around, and he's like, Hey, I'm the lantern dude. I'm out. And he's literally just has no purpose. Now, William, there's different theories about the lantern guy because it appears that it comes from the 1929 talkie version, except there's a lantern guy in the other version, too. So silent movies are always mysterious, I guess. That's true. Honestly, it being a silent film messes with me. Because I have to be constantly doing other things while I'm watching a movie. So I'm over here like, oh yes. In the moment it took for him to um, look around, I have already like built a castle. Clean my room. uh, (laughs) Stop the government from, I don't know, whatever governments are doing these days. These dystopian days. Leia's not a fan of silent movies, I guess. Exactly, these dystopian days. Alright, so uh, what's next? What's next is that I wanted to talk a bit about, you know, what kind of conflicts there are, because as Leia is a writing person, uh, conflict is the very 
uh, cornerstone of writing. So we have, you know, uh, lots of man versus man, or uh, woman. We have uh, man versus society. True. Because Eric is shunned by society. And uh, kind of a bit of man versus self or fate. Yeah. Because mm. of his deformities. That's possible. I'll save more of that for later, I think. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be very interested to hear what you've got to say on that. So, L.A., what's going on with that shadowy figure? Yeah, there's a shadowy figure. He comes out, um, he has a hat. That's the one thing that I noticed about the Shadow Man. He has a hat. That doesn't mean anything. But for all you guys who need a visual thing, he's, he's got a hat. <laughs> so. Isn't he the Phantom? Yeah, but he wears a hat. Yeah, I think he, I think I've seen him wear a hat at least when he was in the, uh, as, as the Mask of the Red Death, you know, when he has that, uh, skull mask on. So the Shadow Man got friends on the other side okay sorry yeah so then we're brought to the opera where we are shown um about the whole performance of these girls doing ballet it is very lovely to watch if we just knew what they're performing then we could play it for you here i guess it would be interesting to see what they are performing. It is very lovely. Lots of flowers. They have uh, these flower arrangements they hold above their heads. I don't know what they're called. In between their dancing, we are shown these men in spectacles. And they all look very businessy. Just imagine the Monopoly man. Although apparently he doesn't have a spectacle. Gets cancelled immediately. Which is really funny. And uh, so they're like selling the building rights to him. Yeah. Uh, to the other two men. The two men are selling rights to two men. They really feel like they're just trying to get it out from under themselves. Yes. Because they're like, uh, here you go. Well, you're selling it for a lot less than it's worth. Yeah, that's great. You're going to deal. Bye. And, uh, you know, because they're afraid of the, the phantom. They bring up an opera ghost. And mm. these dudes are like, okay, so, you know, this opera ghost, that's just a myth, right? The other dudes just kind of laugh. And they react by going, oh, the man in box five or something won't be laughing. And they're like, wow, guys, we're not children. Stop trying to scare us away from fairy tales. <laughs> but then the guys are kind of paranoid now. So the two guys who just bought it, they go out. And they talk to this maid, and they're kind of like, so, who's the man in box five? And the maid is like, I have literally no clue. And then she's like, oh, wait, you mean the the guy with the hood, creepy guy? Oh, yeah, I still have no clue who he is. So they go in to check on the man in box five. They go in, and they get really freaked out, so they walk out. But then they look at each other like, okay, no, we're not children. And they go back in. This guy's gone. Where did he go? I have no clue. Gone, I Because every single person that disappears is obviously the Phantom, obviously scary, so therefore Batman is the Phantom. Batman. Okay. And plus the, the Phantom, Phantom creates layers, uh, so therefore Batman is the Phantom because he is a villain, therefore by creating layers, and he's also disappearing. <laughs> he also has a face he hides from the world. Ooh. So he's like, I'm the Phantom. I'm going to go beat up the Joker. I'm vengeance. <laughs> that's, that's lovely. All right, so, uh, so what happens next, Leia? So then we get to the part with the dancers. Although, for some reason I wrote this, that we start the scene with this old man, and a cat walks down the stairs, and he looks at the cat, shrugs. What does the cat mean? What does it mean? But the cat is the phantom for every single thing. Just a normal cat. Totally a normal cat. Well, it was a black cat. 
Yeah, everything's the Phantom. Everyone is the Phantom. Everyone can be the Phantom, which is a really interesting point I want to discuss later, but go on. <laughs> yeah. So the dancers come back stage and see the shadow of the hat-wearing shadow, as I described it in my notes. They're like, oh, it's the Phantom, which is kind of sums up the first couple scenes of the movie. Uh, it's the Phantom. Yeah. And they're like, he didn't have a nose. They're like, girl, yes, he did. He had a huge nose, so they have no clue yeah, what he looks like. but if he did have a nose, that would be literally so obvious. How could you not describe it? How, how could you not distinguish it? It's probably because originally he didn't have a nose, but Lon Chaney couldn't not have a nose. He couldn't, he didn't have CGI to be Voldemort, so instead he just drawed it up. Yeah. So they can't decide if they like Lon Chaney or Eric the Phantom from the book better. Oh. That's a, that's an interesting point. I thought it was the, uh, I thought it was one of the guys who, that worked there. He, the guy with the little head, which which was kind of creepy. He was holding oh, a yeah. puppet-looking head on his lap. Yeah! It was that dude. His description was very much like the book. The way I describe this guy in my notes is brilliant. I'm going to read it for you. Mm-hmm. I said, then a guy comes. He is emo. He had eyeliner. Very edgy man. You could say that about every hobo on the street. This is the guy with the head. The head puppet. I said it was a Jesus head puppet. Oh, the head puppet. Kind of looked like Jesus. Oh. It was really weird. It's a bearded guy, so it's Jesus. Every wow, bearded guy everybody. is Jesus. Hot take. Oh, that's amazing. Hot take. It's almost like a campfire story that he's telling these ballerinas. So basically, he's saying he has a seven-foot fray. Oh, no. Don't talk about... Oh, no. That's literally cropping up into everything since it's never escaping us. So what's next? Then the old man we met during when the cat walked down the stairs. That was an important moment, I guess. Pivotal, He's like, sure. guys, we should not talk about ghosts. They don't like to be seen or talked about. So this edgy guy with the with the head puppet is immediately like, excuse you? I'm going to show you exactly where I saw him. I don't care about you and your cowardice. So he brings him up. They kind of look around and then the shadow appears and they all run out. Yeah. Another similarity to Nosferatu is the shadow shots of the villain, which are used until we meet him uh, personally, which is a similarity to Nosferatu, one of uh, many comparisons that I'll talk about later. Yes. The next scene, we have Carlotta's mom. She comes in to the office of the new owners and is like, look at this letter! The Phantom has threatened my daughter. The letter says Christine Day will sing the role of Marguerite Wednesday. Any jealous attempt on your part to interfere with the opera will prove disastrous to your career. Signed, The Phantom. Yeah. Wow. And she's over here like, this will not do. You guys better fix it. And then slaps them with a fan. Yeah, but a little bit before this, there was also a scene where they're going up and down a shoot that's uh, like a theater prop and is like they're going yeah. up and down and up and down. That was really funny. When they were running away from the shadow. Yeah. That was kind of funny. And also, intertitles have changed. They literally change, and they have animated backgrounds, at least in the first part and some other places. Also, they're tinted to the scene as well, which brings a ton more light into our last silent film. These are the last intertitles we'll see on our podcast, unfortunately. Oh, that's cool. I'm sure there'll be some now and again, because intertitles completely did not go out uh, a favor they're just they have they're evolved a little bit and they change slightly but you're, you're going to hear people speak their lines instead of reading them uh, but there are going to be some things like you know you know some of the most famous intertitles will will announce you know where a scene is taking place like a city or kind of introduce the story in a couple of a couple small sentences 
unless it's Star Wars and to be a couple pages worth of text. Yeah, but I agree. We intertitles do not completely go away. They just they, they aren't they aren't as descriptive as we see in the silent era. Indeed. We later see the daughter is ill, apparently. And Christine, as the understudy, takes her role. And then we meet, I'm assuming, our protagonist, or at least our second protagonist. Uh, Raul? Yes, we see him. Raul. I, I know Raul is, didn't he, didn't he talk to Christine and, and, and she says she's been tutored by a divine voice, the spirit of music? I don't know. I didn't see that in the movie. Yeah, that was very interesting. The first time that we see him is when he's in the audience watching her perform. And his... With Philippe. Yes, his brother is there. His brother, right? They have the same last name. Yes, his brother then is like, okay, I think your girlfriend has a crush on a homicidal ghost. That's what the Mm. rumors are. And I just call him lover boy in my notes. He's like, don't worry, bro. Nothing can stop our love. That's exactly what he said. Oh my goodness. Yeah. They're the two lovers of our movie, uh, Christine Day yep. and Raul. Raul. Such a fun name, Raul. Then the brother is like, "Okay, you you do you, I guess. Don't don't get careful." And Raul is like, "Yeah, to whatever." He goes on to find her after the performance in the actors' room, and he's like, "I love you. Look at you finding a career and being super talented." And then, although this isn't an exact proposal he's kind of like well we should get married now and she's like i'm an independent woman and i've got to follow my dreams of the opera forget about our love and then they kiss as if christine had not just said that then he leaves and christine hears an angelic voice and that voice says look at all i've done for you look at how nice i am now forget everything else except your career and me of course and of course raul is listening in and he's like I guess I'm crazy now. Because there's a voice in the walls that were the previously mentioned muse. That's the fan of the opera, secretly. And he's deathly in love with you. You ever have a secret admirer who's just deathly in love with you and you meet him and you're like, this guy is just creepy. Every day. Who's inside the wall. Yeah, he's inside the wall. We can vaguely see a shadow. He's just shadow man for now. Everything I've ever loved is here within these walls. Sorry, secret sighting that I'm blocking out your calls. Beautiful. Oh, no. oh, I love no. that. That was wonderful. Thank you. So that was your Frozen 2 reference. So uh, after the second warning by the Phantom, what happens so, next? So, yes, the mom comes in and she's like, Christine's friends are plotting again. They're threatening my daughter and telling her to pretend to be ill. But nothing, and I say nothing, will stop Carlotta from singing. So they completely ignore any of the danger that was threatened, and Carlotta sings. In fact, uh, she sings Faust, which is the opera that they've actually been doing this whole time, is a Faust. And ah. the prima donna. Carlotta's singing as, she's uh, singing as a character named Marguerite. Yeah. Marguerite. Marguerite Wednesday. And uh, in this section, while she's singing, there's the Phantom is sabotaging the place, and there's a light pulsing effect, which... I have not mentioned my video game nerdiness, <laughs> but I feel like I really have to, if you'll let me. Minecraft. <laughs> Minecraft will have a future update, which has a really famous mob called the Warden, which uh, is a boss mob that goes around and it creates this light pulsing effect around it, which is really terrifying. 
and kill you in like a couple of hits just finish you off which i cannot help but seeing the resemblance of the light pulsing effect that the phantom causes versus the warden i didn't know it did that creepy oh that's fun that's a little bit horror-y so what happens after the lights are, are flashing? I think one of the biggest scenes in the whole, one of the largest scenes in the whole film happens. Yeah. During this performance, we are seeing um, Carlotta sing and... And then it says, she's singing to bring down the chandelier. And then it crashes. Yes. It kills like something like 50, 50 to 100 people. I can't, I can't even tell how many people are, are murdered. Yeah, why do people even remake the chandelier after the Phantom kills people? They just remake it. <laughs> they hang it right back up with not nary a thought. But it's broken, so how? And plus the movie treats it as an afterthought, uh, the crash part, versus the, the musical treats it as like the, the main centerpiece is the chandelier crashing down, which uh, well, poetic, depending really on how sad. you look at it. It's a big stunt scene. If this was a scene with stunt people in it, it it's one of those big set pieces that, that should shock people. But I think that the actors portraying it just kind of go, okay. Okay, something I wanted to point out. Christine comes out during the panic while everyone is like, oh no. She comes out, just stands there, and then literally walks backward which I think is the funniest thing. I laugh out loud every time I see it. She just walks out. is like, okay, nope. She noped out of there. So people are running. And the edgy man, the guy with the eyeliner and the Jesus head puppet, he comes out and shares kind of a sketchy glance with Raul. And then they both leave. And of course, Raul is going over to the actor room. Maybe to kind of spy on Christine, see what's going on. He's kind of suspicious of her. And she comes in, and the Phantom is like, hey! And Christine comes in, the Phantom is like, hey! And she kind of has this shocked expression for a second, and then is like, sup? I don't know how to describe it. Her face kind of goes blank. Does does she actually see him, or is he He's talking to her behind the mirror there's a secret mirror in her bedroom like a, that just flips down. yeah the door that leads down to the lair all of which have green tinting which is also really interesting as it was used for the jungle previously in lost world it's used for dank areas but uh but it's only used for certain dank areas you know like the backstage and the entrance part but otherwise doesn't appear which is really bad continuity like might as well dye it all green when you're in the lair. You know, give him a symbolism for to represent the fan. Yeah, it's very strange. She kind of has this look of like, oh, kind of suspicious now. But she follows him anyway into the mirror, like you said. And Rayo is like, oh no, what's what's even happening? And she kind of follows him and is like, well, I'm scared now. And the Phantom is like, no, it's me. Remember, I'm your angel of music. That he didn't say that. That's musical reference. And he's also like, okay, don't don't mind. Don't mind the mask. Just remember everything I've done for you. And then I think he enchants her or something. It's a little bit confusing. Her face does go very blank and she just follows him. Sort of a sleeping beauty situation. He does kind of have a hypnotic control because there's certain parts where they will blur the, the scene. While you're while she's looking at him, it's, it's like he's causing her to fade out. 
Yeah, so is mass that he uses when he appears. It's like a full face mask, but only half, while the rest of it is a cloth mask, which I thought was really interesting. I wonder why, that it wouldn't be a, either a full face mask or, I don't know, just like the pandemic face masks. Well, it's like the both combined. He has just a random pandemic. I think it covers up his deformed mouth, but also allows him to sing, like his breathing, so he can sing, but through that, it's still not covered up. But if you look at other masks, they cover up a good deal of the face until you get to the more modern masks, you know, that were inspired by the musical. And it's like a half mask. Sort of like a one of those masks that are half smiling, half frowning, sort of that vibe. Kind of. And it, it takes up half the face. And the reason why is because they shifted the deformity to, to the other side of the face or the damage or whatever, however it comes from. And they did that so that the actor could emote and sing on stage and still be seen as, you know, also yeah. also he can look half handsome or kind of handsome and be mysterious. But of course, in the musical, they change it to only like a half mask so that he's more humanized. I agree with that. William, you mentioned the sort of COVID mask parallel. I literally wrote in my yeah. note. Also, by the way, don't mind the mask. The CDC <laughs> recommended it. Yes, exactly. But yeah. So he also tells her that th there's also a little suite that he where he stays. Um, what, what, what a lot of people that have reviewed this said is like, you know, they say all this stuff and then it's like he was preparing for them to marry. He has like monograms stuff. <laughs> I don't think he, he didn't go that far. No, they were. He, he had stuff with her name on it. Uh Oh, he's got a nice little bed for her to stay on. But for him, it's a coffin. Yeah, that's yeah. not, that's not emo at all. He said it reminds him of death. The other sleep. And also, don't forget to mention his canal that he has on his way to uh, his lair. It's kind of like the, yeah. the Grand Canal in Venice. He also has a horse P Pony that Express, he trucks her on and then a boat. Where did the horse come from? What is the horse doing down there? He's just, uh, My question yeah, just exactly. A sewer horse. What's up, guys? I'm a sewer horse. Sewer horse. A source. Yeah. He tells her, I brought you here because I love you. Please love me. And... She is like, oh, I know what you are. You're the phantom. Duh. And she's like, you're impossibly emo and creepy. Your skin is covered in a mask. I know what you are. And he's like, say it out loud. Say it. The phantom. Vampire. <laughs> I'm a vampire. <laughs> Was that a Twilight reference? Yes. I know what you are. Say it. Say it out loud. Vampire. <laughs> yeah, and he's like. I'm only the phantom because people's hatred made me so. If you love me, I will be saved. I'm Eric, by the way. And then she passes out, as one does. I mean, understandable. And he's like, well, okay. Puts, her, puts her on the bed. She wakes up and there's a note. There's a note that said you can, you can come and go, and go as you please, but to never look behind his mask. Yep. And, uh... What does she immediately do? Look behind the mask. Yeah. But we're getting too far ahead. The first thing that she hears when she wakes up is the other room in the other room the phantom is playing the organ we interrupt today's broadcast with a helpful life lesson how not to terrify your love interest number one kidnap them number two play them a very not creepy song on the least creepy instrument three threaten their loved ones and that concludes our helpful life lesson on how not to terrify your love interest so anyway, <laughs> Christine comes up and is uh, like, ooh, what you playing? 
And he's like, oh, yes, this song reminds me of you and triumphant love. Yet listen, there are sounds and ominous undercurrent of warning. Red flag alert. Don Juan triumphant. Red flag alert. Yeah, exactly. And she decides after all that and the facts that he attempted to squash people. He did squash people with a chandelier that it is a perfectly safe and reasonable thing to remove his mask. The one thing he said, don't do or else. And honestly, I'd love this scene because it is so, especially on the Phantom's part, it is brilliant, his emotion, because he kind of walks up to her, grabs her face, and just laughs, and then immediately looks in pain. This is the most iconic scene of the entire movie, where it just pulls he off, goes he's up like, to her and is like, <gasps> and it's like really creepy and it hit people extremely. Look upon me and my ugliness. This is the first time that she that she's seen Lon Chaney in the makeup too. So the reaction that she gives completely genuine. Lon Chaney did not want anybody to, like I said before in the podcast, Lon Chaney didn't want anybody to see the the makeup at all. Uh, I mean, the cameraman, Mr. Van, Charles Van Inger, he saw it and uh, it freaked him out. Uh, so Lon Chaney knew he had, he had a, a hit on his hands with this. And they, of course, they would black out the face of the Phantom on any kind of advertising so you wouldn't know. And in fact, there's a they would do these things during movies. They would say, whatever you see in this movie, please do not tell your friends about it and, and, and reveal the secret. I mean, that's that's kind of like what people do now is where... where no spoilers! You know, where... Where Tom Holland will say, you know, hey, you know, this trailer that's coming up has some spoilers if you haven't seen this such in-game movie or whatever. So it's a very... Or Andrew Garfield saying, I was not in this movie completely. I'm not the werewolf. Stop. But he's, he's, a really good, he's a really good liar and a really good actor. Lactor. So back to this, what I would say is that it's probably the most effective uh, and, and scene in the whole movie. Honestly, that's... I mean, the, the the story is good, and I won't downplay the story at all. But his appearance in it is something that will stick with you for a long time. And there's a lot of actors that, when they were little kids, saw this movie, like for the, when it came out, and they said that it affected them for years and years later. They would still see that image of the Phantom. So say what you will about the story, but Lon Chaney does stick with people. Yeah, I'm gonna continue to comment on this scene. I I need to I need to say more. He right on. As I said, he literally goes up and grabs her face which is terrifying and laughs but immediately just has the most pained expression and it really truly shows so much emotion it's shocking and you feel bad for both christine and the phantom but also just horror because even if the phantom is sympathetic in some ways he's still a terrible person and that's all in him. But it's sad because you know that a lot of what pushed him towards this was how people treated him. And he was locked up, wasn't he? In an insane asylum or something. Just always treated like a monster. Even if he, it is his fault for acting like that, it still hurts to see that that's what he was pushed into. I thought he exactly. gave a lovely exactly. performance right there. And honestly, beautiful work from just everyone. <laughs> He does say that that she's now his prisoner. So it kind of he every time the Phantom is supposed it says something that makes you pity him, then he'll say something yep. really creepy and 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 violent and and you know non consensual. 
So, what do you say about that? He's a bad man. I'm not def- saying he's a good man. Or that right. it was all society's fault. You can have good people come out of terrible circumstances. It's just sad True. to see True. that society does that to people. And so then next we have the ball. Uh, the ball, the mask ball. And uh, we jump into it well, with uh, the... Fi- you, mi- you, missed, uh, you missed... You missed something, William. You missed- she... See, she, uh, she... Christine... She, she, she says, says, please let me sing, sing again on the surface world. Yeah. Christine is like, let me go. Let me go where I want to go. I'll, I promise I'll be your slave forever. And he's like, okay, fine. Just don't see that boy that you like. Don't talk don't to Raul Don't talk to Raul or-, or else you both die. Oh and it's, gosh, that's horrible. It's so sad because the expression he wears looks like he almost feels like he has to punish her. He has to set all these rules and he's like, well, it's your fault because he doesn't want to kill her. He could care less about Ryo, but it's such a twisted mindset and it's it's beautiful. It's lovely, lovely piece of cinema. I, I, I sound so stuck up. Sorry. Now that they're out of the lair, they're ju- we jump into a fantasy intertitle, like a fantasy storybook intertitle, which is really interesting because usually they're just in one font, and now we have one that's in a different font. And uh, previous to this, there was also an intertitle that had uh, writing in it uh, as well, uh, of like handwriting. So I mean, like that's very interesting where all the intertitles are varied now. Yeah, because Christine sends uh, Royal a letter that... She needs to meet up with him. Yeah, and I was, like, amazed at, like, this. I was, like, my mind was blown whenever I saw that. Because, I mean, compared to all the things that we've seen, it's definitely an upgrade uh, in that aspect. And the uh, interesting thing about the ball is that they tinted the clothes, but, like, only the clothes. They, like, tinted every object and clothes individually. Like, red and black and gray is the theme of the masquerade ball. Masquerade. And it gives it an unnatural color, like an artificial color to it that's kind of fantastical. It's so up my alley. I love masquerade balls. Never been to one. And like being able to tint a specific part of the bo- of the body of clothes as they move, like accurately, extremely accurately at that, compared to like the smudginess of stuff like a, a trip to the moon color version, of course. That's like amazing, the accuracy that they could do with the tinting. It's difficult now and tedious to do it digitally, but they did it frame by frame, and that's that's to be commended, definitely. Any Anything that they did in, during the, these traditional times. The dedication. I could never. <laughs> well, and, and the great thing is, you know, the most over-the-top dramatic person has to show up to see Raul and Christine have a little meeting and this extremely dramatic person is of course the phantom he's dressed as the red death and it's just an awesome costume he literally says that he's like you guys are dancing on the graves of tortured men as the red death i rebuke your merriment and they're like, ooh, this Super must be annoyed. part of the show. That, that, I think that, yeah, I think they were acting like kind of freaked out for a moment. And then they went, awesome. This is kind of a cool party. This is good. This guy comes out and says some creepy stuff. Isn't this, I don't know if this is true or not. This The Red Death thing was from the Edgar Allan Poe story, uh, Mask of the Red Death, I think, in where a character comes in uh, with a red skull kind of 
and, and red outfit get up. So I think that's what he's, he's, he's dressing as. Um, but yeah, so, so he comes out, creeps them out, and they hoof it. What happens after that? Christine and Raul go up on top of the opera house. Where there's a statue that's a very famous st- statue scene. And the fandom is up secretly at the top, right? As well. Yes. He comes to overhear it with his cape flying in the wind. She's like, no one can hear what I have to say. Meanwhile, the phantom is overhearing everything. And she says, I have seen the phantom. He's a monster and you must save me. And Raul is like, after the performance, we can leave. And they hug. Very cute. And the phantom is like, emotional damage. (laughs) Emotional (laughs) damage. He's like, she's betrayed me. So the two lovers come downstairs and the edgy man gives them directions, says, don't go that way, this way. So they back up awkwardly. The phantom comes downstairs, whipping his cape around in the skull mask, like, out of the way. And all the business people and all the people are like, oh, it's the phantom. Now we switch over to a scene with the business guys who find a note on Eric, who is a self-educated musician and a master of black art. He was exiled to Devil's Island for... Which is also not accurate to the Insane book. people. And he's escaped and now at large. Yes, William, this is not book accurate. An interesting detail, though. Yeah. So uh, they go, there you have it. That's the Phantom. Don't know why they didn't put that together sooner. They just kind of dealt with the opera ghost. And so they delve into the catacombs? Not yet. We start with the opera where Christine is crying in the actor room right before the performance starts. And she, the phantom has told her that, I'm assuming he told her, that he knows the plan. And Ryo is like, yep, it's okay. You'll be okay. He dries her tears and says, we'll go after the performance. This scene was really cute. The next scene is of the old man who finds someone's been hanged. He gets a group of people and they identify the man as Joseph. Like, <laughs> strangled. I mean, they like totally got away with that. Where it's like, how on earth do you have someone getting hanged in, in a something like that? That's really funny. They showed the shadow. It was honestly terrifying. Remember in Tarzan where they showed the shadow of the bad guy who had accidentally hanged himself? Just with the lightning strike, they showed the shadow. That's something you don't notice as a kid. You're welcome, your child is, is ruined. <laughs> so, during Christine's performance, the phantom appears, taking a guy down in one of the boxes that I'm assuming is where they operate some of the special effects that go on on stage. And she sees the phantom and is kidnapped again. So, Raoul goes looking for her everywhere, and the edgy man comes up to him. He says he can bring him to Christine, and Raoul is like, okay, who are you? Apparently, edgy man is the secret police, which I think is a detail added in the movie, not something in the yeah. book. His name is given as uh, Inspector Ledoux. Inspector but Ledoux. That's mainly in the intertitle that his name because is Because actually, he was uh, in the book, he was a Persian. 
Yeah, he was known as the Persian. Yeah, and so they're, so they're kind of making it like he's an undercover it guy. It entirely retconned the uh, Persian thing. From the original idea, I discussed this earlier of the flashback to Persia, where he would, of course, be the uh, executioner for the... A sul- sultan. And he is, uh, Ledoux has been tracking Eric since he escaped as a prisoner from Devil's Island. And he knows secrets and he knows secret openings and stuff. So what 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 happens there, Leia? He brings Raoul down into the catacombs, showing him the mirror trick, and tells him to put his hand up, just one hand, right beside his face, so as not to get strangled. And we go back to the Phantom and Christine, and the Phantom is like, how dare you love the other guy when I did all this for you? I'm a nice guy, trademark. Oh, no. <laughs> trademark nice guy syndrome. <laughs> uh, really not nice, though. Murder guy probably syndrome. probably didn't know this, though, that the, the Phantom has, has, a, uh, has, a, has a nifty trick that he can do that he uses very shortly. Doesn't um, the brother of Raul come looking for them? Yes, and that triggers a an alarm yeah the phantom has an alarm and it's basically like a lion or like a cat moving his claws up and down like sort of like that it's really funny it's kind of reminds me was it the lucky cat is what that's called and it also reminds me of nosferatu in his castle as we discussed in nosferatu or no i didn't i didn't say it was in the castle but uh, it was in nosferatu's castle that uh, he has a skeleton clock it's like a clock with like a skeleton on it. It's pretty cool. And it's also very similar. Another similarity of Nosferatu and uh, this movie. Yes. And sadly, our two heroes fall into a trap. And the Phantom goes to check, see who all is out there. He drags Ryo's brother into the water, which you have to uses a, pass by uses, boat. Uses, he uses snorkel. He uses a snorkel. He uses like a snorkel. Now, I want to mention two things here. First off, he's using a snorkel in... I want everyone to realize this when you watch this movie. Um, of course, the link will be in the description or the link will be in the, in, the, in the blog post on this. The thing that he is, where he's going, is, is the sewer. I'm, now, the, the, the less we say about what a sewer is, the better. But when he goes under that water, I'm like, dude, dude, really. What I also did not realize, because this is not a sound movie, I looked into the part where in the book, and supposedly he is not only breathing out of this snorkel, he is singing. And his singing is so hypnotic and draw, and, and it draws someone... To listen to it, that is what causes somebody to... Confirmed? The Phantom is a mermaid. It's confirmed. The control, the control of his body to not breathe out of his the hole in his face, and he's underwater. That can't be, that can't be sanitary or good for your breathing. And he's singing, and he's breathing through a snorkel. So, good on you, buddy. I could not do that at all. I I can't do it. I think it's time we get some advanced singing training. This is not what they're teaching in high school band. No, it's not. High school band and choir. No, they certainly aren't. Yes. So Philippe is drowned, and Eric goes back in and sees the two guys in. Yeah, the torture chamber is really interesting, where there's mirrors all around. It's creating heat, so they would burn it to death. I mean, uh, mirror heat would not be on my grave. I mean, like, that's the one of the most oddest death. I mean, good on you, Phantom. I mean, like, that would be the oddest death to ever give someone. 
R.I.P. Mr. Baker died by mirror heat. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness, yeah. So what happens after that, Leia? Well, the Phantom was out snorkeling. Christine has been looking for the keys to try and free Raul and Edgy Man, the secret police guy. And the Phantom catches her and hears the voices and realizes the two guys are in the mirror room. And he goes to turn on the heat and is like, okay, bargain for their lives. What are you going to offer me? The Phantom still has explosives. Yeah. Of course he does. Barrels full of gunpowder in a little chamber. And so then Christine is begging the Phantom and he's like, please, I'll do anything. Just save Raul because he's like, when he didn't die first off, he's then flooding it. So they also die, and then he also has explosives. So he's he's such a villain. He has so many traps on top of his traps. He's got like uh, spare traps and spare traps. He just they're gonna die if you've ever been in his lair. So he sets up this sort of impossible choice situation for Christine. So there's like a coffin, and it contains two bugs that you turn. I mean, turn a bug and die. Um. Or turn the other bug and explode everything. Yeah, one of them is to turn the bug, and then everyone dies. She debates it, though. She literally looks at that one, reaches out towards it, goes, You know, maybe it would just be better if everyone was exploded. (laughs) But she decides against it and uh, turns the one to marry him. So she chooses, she chooses the, there's a scorpion and a grasshopper, and she chooses the scorpion and turns that one around. Honestly, I thought that was just such a strange detail. I'm like, okay, just say say it out loud. But I guess it had to, yeah, to trigger the traps as to flood them. Upon which the trap door is opened, and of course they're saved. And then they all escape. But then there's a mob uh, that was led down. They're coming with torches. Coming with the torches. Kind of having a beauty and beast. Kill the beast. Kill the beast. Kill the beast. Kill the beast. Moment. And... He realizes this, that everyone's coming to kill him, and here Raul and the secret police guy are. So he drags Christine away and uses the getaway carriage that Raul set up for Christine and him. And Christine is kind of groggy. She jumps out, though. Can't imagine how much that hurt. And realizing this, the Phantom stops the carriage, which tips over. And he tries to go over to try and bring her back, but then realizes, yeah, no, he would probably be better off just running. But he runs, gets to the end of a pier. Everyone meets him there with torches, and he's like, stay back! But of course, it doesn't work. They kind of beat him up and chuck him in the water. And it ends! Yay! Very abruptly. I think he's meant to uh, when he's flourishing with his hands. I think his hand. I think he's he's meant to make them think that he has a rapier, like a sword. And then he goes, "Nope, got nothing in my hands. Sorry, guys." And then they throw him in the River Seine, which is in is in France. I kind of thought he was going. I have dark magic or something. I don't know. I feel like the movie isn't very clear whether he is a spirit or just a normal man who's been trapped here. If he does have magic, or if he's just expressive, I guess. I think it's all simple tricks and nonsense, like uh, like Han Solo says. It's 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 misdirection. It's, it's, il- it's illusion. 
theatrics. There you go. He's he, he's underneath a theater. He, what do you he's expect? a dramatic guy. He's a dramatic guy underneath a theater. How could he not be theatrical in everything that he does? I mean, the the musical kind of makes you think maybe he has, you know, abilities, maybe he doesn't, but it really it's all illusion and and traps and and trap doors and and secret compartments and i'll challenge you listeners because it's unclear and of course you probably can't get from these from this plot cliff notes version anything about the movie really so go watch the movie for yourself we definitely always recommend it because we treat it as if you've already watched the movie even though we recount it anyway it's kind of our style we come through it kind of like a library and then grab the books as we uh skim through uh, we grab the important bits, but uh, we challenge you: go watch this movie and try and come up with an idea or ideology for yourself, whether the Phantom is a spirit or a normal man. The question is about the ending: is did it work or did it not work? Because the original ending was different, and I'm going to read out a reconstruction based upon some photos that they found uh, and some and some uh, some individual frames of what they believe that the ending was. And I'm going to read that out to you guys. Uh, Leia, I don't think you know it. William, I don't think you know this ending either. I'm going to read it out to you. And this is what originally the theater-going audience, say what you will about theater-going audience, maybe they judge things as boring, maybe they judge things as not interesting or action-packed enough, and and, and they you know beg for changes. And then the, the studio does it, and then we have what we have you know on, on film right now. So uh, if you guys do not mind, I'm going to go ahead and, and elucidate what the original ending reconstructed was, and then you can give me your opinions on, on which one you like better. So some of the scenes that we already have, it went the same way. The Phantom is asking Christine which of the two switches she wants to pull, the scorpion or the grasshopper. Um, in this version, she turns the scorpion, just like in the regular version. The water line in the sewer recedes and the water starts to fill up the chamber with the gunpowder and it, that's almost drowning Ledoux and Raoul. Okay, so, so far, so good, right? So the people from the city are coming down with torches to get the Phantom. Christine says, I will do anything you wish if you will only save them. Now, he asks her for a kiss because his mother would never kiss him and would only throw him the mask and run away. This is similar to the book. And she says she'll do as she wishes and gives him a kiss. He's surprised that she kissed him and did not die Because he's from like, only a mother could love me. Only my mother could yeah. love me. A face only a mother could love. Right. And she says, please save them as you promised. Right. He saves them just as he did in the current version. Raul and Ledoux are pulled out of the water. Of course, the interesting thing in both versions that you see is how she responds to getting Raul back. It really hits the phantom square in the fields that... Raul and her really do have a thing. Uh, so the townspeople are coming in. The Phantom sees uh, Christine Raul and sees how they're responding to each other and know that they're truly in love, right? And he starts holding his chest as if he's dying. It's like he's dying from lack of love. The Phantom says, I release you from your promise. Go and marry your love. The Phantom sees the townsfolk with the torches coming from afar off, and he says, I'm going to die, but not by their hands. I love you so and love you still. So he's dying for the love of And then the wedding ring falls. Well, he, I said this much earlier, if you guys uh, remember. Yeah, he says to Ledoux, remember that Eric, at the end of his wretched life, did one act of kindness in atonement for his crimes. So he sits down at the organ and says, my life is ended. I must play my requiem 
which is like a funeral march, but it is your wedding march. The Phantom falls over dead as he is playing Because he it. died of a broken heart. Yeah. He, all he wanted to be was loved. And Raul says, halt, the lot of you do you not see. He's telling the townsfolk to just stop. Don't burn his... You're coming to kill him, but look, he's dying anyway. It's too late. The man known to the world as the Phantom is no more. Raul tells the townsfolk to lay him in his bed, which is also a coffin. It's almost like the last good thing we can do for this man. And the, the end text says, to some he was a ghost, to others a devil, to one an angel, but forever will be remembered as the Phantom of the Opera. After this, there's an epilogue scene. It's really quick. Raul and Christine are on a honeymoon in a place called Virafle, and they have a kiss. Then it ends. So it's a more sad ending it's emotion. I say I'll I'll get y'all's opinion on it. But I think it's emotionally satisfying, but the other one is more action packed and kind of it appeals more to the the visceral the person who the, wants it to be a monster movie versus the person who wants it to be a romantic movie wants to be to be a romantic or or, or a just tragedy a tragedy. So I don't know which I I I think I prefer the original version because you get to there's a lot more acting that you get to do there and it. But again, I, I don't mean to put my two cents on your top of yours, but Leia, what do you think about the original ending and the new one? If you know me, or if you've really listened to me in the past hour or so, you know that I love the tragedy. Don't know why. Always have. At first watch of the original beginning, I wasn't paying much attention, and I, when I looked back... He was chucked in the water. It ended just like that. <laughs> and while on rewatch, I appreciated it more. I thought it was very heart racing. And there was a lot of adrenaline and action in that, which there's nothing wrong with adrenaline and action. And I think there's definitely a lot of opportunity to really appreciate that, even though a lot of people either take the side of oh i only want to see the explosions and the punch punching fight haha and then you have the other people who are like oh i prefer a more eloquent tragic ending and i do think that i would have paid a bit more attention had it been more emotional but consider us in our day and age we as humanity have shorter attention spans than ever, and I think it really depends on what sort of person you are. Back then, you had people who were more willing to pay attention to all the little details of an action scene. You have people nowadays who honestly could be either. It depends on what grabs your, your attention. Although I think most would say the most attention-grabbing thing is the acting and tragedy of a scene though of course opinions differ yeah well, william what yeah, do you think my final thoughts for this movie was uh compared to calgary cabinet calgary um it was kind of like that but it it was a bit more unsettling but not really as great as calgary and it, uh, it definitely falls behind nosferatu when you think of you know like the the little tidbits inside it you know depth uh subtlety uh, art form, stuff like that. It falls behind definitely Nosferatu uh, is better in that regard. And so the lesson learned for this movie is don't hang out with bad hobos. 
Don't get into bad relationships. <laughs> don't obsess with people, like, constantly. And don't take your pity for love. Yeah. Know that just because you feel sympathetic for someone does not mean you owe them your love. Just because someone has suffered or the fact that your love and attention helped them, that does not mean it is on you to sacrifice your well-being or your other relationships especially and the theme of this movie is also like beauty for versus ugliness and you know the nature of love and don't judge a book by his cover true because after all they they might be bad look bad outwardly but might be good inwardly i mean anyone could be the phantom i mean as i said earlier as a point was that any person could be a phantom they could be like, not worthy of love, but you should give them love, which is the themes of this movie. Also, uh, there's, like, some sacrifices in this movie, you know? She had to, was going to sacrifice, although it didn't really, like, go into anything, but, like, sacrifice. Marrying to the Phantom for, uh, Lido and the Persian guy. Well, in the book, he's the Persian guy, as well. Yes, and end of bringing people out of the darkness and into the light. seeing people fall into the darkness and knowing how to bring them out sometimes it's not something you can do but there are times you can catch someone going towards a dark place before they reach that dark place and with the phantom the phantom couldn't really be helped at least at least not in the framework of the story the phantom could not be helped because after all it's the inner it's not the outer but the inner that when you see someone truly that drives people away it's not oh they must be terrible people to not want me nice guy syndrome yes okay so we have discussed phantom of the opera upside down and sideways we've plumbed the depths and the catacombs of this movie of course this story gets told quite a few other times until the modern era. It's most uh, remembered to this day because of the musical. But uh, we remember it in this case today uh, due to this, uh, with the, the power of this film. So uh, Leia has a poetry blog, and we will list that address uh, just kind of so you can take a look at some of her stuff. We'll list that in the description for the podcast here. We'll also list it on our blog so that you can find it easily. Just in case you're a action movie watcher or a horror monster movie watcher at heart, and also a poetic romantic at heart. It's a rare few, but maybe maybe you're out there. And with that, we, uh, we need to bid you adieu. And uh, till next time. Have a good night. Or a day. See ya. Or afternoon. Bye. Bye. Don't forget to open your third eye and telepathically message us at cinefanpod at gmail.com. Set your chronoscope dial to the future setting and peruse cinematicfanpodcast.wordpress.com. Hunker over your ham radio as your keen ears listen for the ghostly voices tweeting on our Twitter at CinematicFanta1. Exchange all of your money into Republic credits and donate at our Patreon page at 
patreon.com slash cinefanpodcast. Ending transmission now. Thank you.